This is Roof English Radio with Darinata, daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Roof. Hello, this is Roof English Radio. I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for your company today. It is Friday afternoon, the 9th of February, and we are very close to maybe witnessing the very end of the third volcanic eruption on the Reykjanes Peninsula in as many months. These eruptions are happening, as I'm sure you're aware, very frequently, and they're not lasting for very long. As we sit here at just after 25 past three in the afternoon on Friday afternoon, we cannot say with certainty that the eruption is over. However, Einar Bessie Gestson, who is a natural disaster expert at the Icelandic Met Office, says the end of the eruption is probably imminent. There's been no visible activity since eight o'clock in the morning this morning. That doesn't mean there hasn't been any. It just means that none has been visible. But he says most likely if this behaves similarly to the last eruptions in this area in December and January, then this is coming to an end. Now, this eruption has been significant because of the damage it has done to the hot water supply to tens of thousands of people across the southwest of Iceland, across the Reykjanes Peninsula. So what's the very latest on that? Well, we're told that by midnight tonight, Friday into Saturday, the new pipeline, which is being laid and constructed at double, treble, quadruple quick time in very challenging conditions, that will be in a sufficiently uh, good state to have hot water running through it. It might take until Sunday evening for homes to be heated by hot water again. That's according to Sigvaldi Arna Laurison of Sudanes Police. He says the work being done to connect the hot water pipes has gone very well. He says the workers have come a long way in putting it all together. They expect to let hot water through it late tonight, but it can take up to two days for the water to reach the houses. So what are people doing to try to keep warm at this time? It's about minus eight, minus nine degrees, I think, today. I've not been outside today, but it's pretty cold across all of Iceland and certainly in that part of the country. Uh, people in Sudanes have resorted to two means to stay warm. The first is, as you might imagine, electricity. But the Icelandic electrical grid is not designed for central heating. It's not designed to heat homes. We in Iceland here rely on hot water to do that. So when there is or if there is a, a great demand from people to heat their homes using electricity, that can place a very great demand indeed, maybe a, a fatal demand on this system. The good news from civil defence is that people appear to have heeded the pleas not to rush out and buy and switch on fan heaters simultaneously. Certainly yesterday the advice was for no more of a demand per house than 2,500 watts, which I believe is about the same as a fairly uh, strong hairdryer. But if that's heating an entire home, you can imagine the difficulty. The other way that people have been heating their homes is to resort to gas canisters and cylinders. And indeed, they have been sold out in many places across the Reykjanes Peninsula. That comes with its own difficulties, particularly if people are not accustomed to using gas tanks or cylinders. There are risks of carbon monoxide poisoning. There are, of course, the risks of flammability that come with using that particular source of heat. Um, it's also worth saying, I don't know whether this offer has been extended to other parts of the capital area or by other parts of the capital area, but the two swimming pools in Kupavoyer in the capital area have said to the residents of Sudanes, you can come and swim and use our facilities here free. Uh, the pools are open until 10 o'clock this evening. They open again at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. 
And I imagine some people across Southerness will want to take advantage of that offer to swim and bathe and indeed shower in the facilities of the Copavor swimming pools. We are into the very final hours of this once again. That means, among other things, that in Grindavik, the ongoing return of residents is something that can resume tomorrow. It was obviously halted until we were able to work out exactly what was happening specifically in Grindavik. Of course, this eruption has not imperiled the town of Grindavik. It has not seen lava flow to the town in, in the way that we saw in previous eruptions. Uh, Vida Reynason, who's Director of Civil Defence, maybe one of the most well-known faces, I think, on Icelandic television over the last few years, he says that after examining the situation in Grindavik today, it is clear that it will be possible to allow residents and businesses back into the town tomorrow. That is Saturday, he says. We'll introduce this later in a similar format as we've used previously. Both companies and individuals are allowed to enter the town in a controlled fashion and have plenty of time tomorrow. That is the plan. Also, in the midst of all this, the cold water supply stopped working as well in Ausbru and how latest levy and at Keplavik Airport as well. Now, the airport, along with homes and other businesses across the peninsula, of course, did not have hot water yesterday. The airport switched off its air conditioning to try to maintain heat in the airport. The cold water supply stopped working as well. Completely unrelated to the eruption, we're told, there was a major leak in the pipe and repairs have been going on all night. Um, as we sit here at just after half past three on Friday afternoon, if that repair has not yet been completed, it will be very soon. But that's an unrelated problem. Also, of course, worth underlining in situations like this when we have an eruption, flights completely unaffected. You can take a look for yourself at the arrivals and departures board on the website of Keplavik International Airport. No impact on flights because of what has been happening. I did wonder how an airport would cope without either hot water to heat the building or indeed cold water, but uh, it has remained open throughout and they are reporting no impact as a consequence of those fairly challenging and trying conditions. And it does puzzle some people that it's possible to fly into Keplavik International Airport, which is very close to this eruptive zone, and for those eruptions not to have an impact on the possibility of flying. It's very simple, actually. The reason that there is no impact on flights is that these eruptions, and we now number them as six in the last five years across the Reykjanes Peninsula, none of them are ash eruptions. They are fissure eruptions. That means they happen on the land. The magma shoots out of the earth as lava, and then, as you, as you have been able to see, no doubt, spreads itself across the landscape. There isn't any ash produced. What happened in 2010, you might be asking, when, of course, airspace across much of Europe and it, it seemed much of the world was closed because of the ash that came from the Eyjafjallajökull eruption. That was very different. That took place under glacial ice. The magma shot out straight through the glacial ice, and instead of turning immediately to lava was supercooled, turned to ash, which then blew up into the air, causing that disruption to aviation for weeks on end. So what we've seen yesterday, what we've seen over the last five eruptions across the Reykjanes Peninsula over the last five years, or the last six eruptions now, nothing like what happened in 2010. Some people getting in touch with Ruve English saying, hang on a minute, why isn't this impacting on flights? Well, that's the answer. It's a very different kind of eruption, even though 
It's happening so close to Reykjavik, or I should I say Keplavik International Airport, which is worth mentioning, of course, that domestic flights to and through Reykjavik domestic airport, they're unaffected as well for the, the same reason. But there have been some airline passengers who have had the most astonishing views yesterday morning, particularly Thursday morning of what was happening, flying directly over this eruption landing very close to it in perfect safety of course but having the most amazing and dramatic views from the airline seat as they do so so that's where we sit at as i say just after 3 30 on friday afternoon the hope is that the hot water supply will be restored by certainly by the end of the weekend and indeed the hot water will be flowing through those pipes again by midnight tonight and that would be a proof of concept if nothing else it seems that the work has been going very very well and again you have to spare a thought for the heroic workers who have been involved in trying to relay these pipes we saw i think it's fair to say equal levels of heroism a month or so ago when you had workers running towards lava streaming towards them jumping into their excavators to save those precious machines so they could then be used to build up more defensive walls or defensive dikes and, and even escaping the lava flow by driving on the defensive dikes that they had already constructed. So no shortage of hard, hard work taking place in very challenging, very cold conditions here in the southwest of Iceland. And uh, no one in the country, I think, not sparing a thought for uh, for people in that situation. So that's the state of play at Friday afternoon. We now return to what you might call, on Roof English, our scheduled programming. And I want to bring you a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman who, in 1977, decided to travel around the entire coastline of Iceland by kayak, which is quite a feat. Today we are returning via Zoom to Seattle, where we were a couple of weeks ago hearing about the Icelandic jumpers that are knitted in that city on the west coast of the USA by Leslie. Uh, listening to that conversation, I think I'm right in saying, was Nigel Foster, who got in touch with me, who in 1977 kayaked, if that's the right verb to use, around Iceland and Nigel got in touch with me asking if I'd be interested in hearing his story to which the answer was an emphatic yes. Nigel, good afternoon, good morning, whatever time it is. I know the eight-hour time difference is something we contended with last time. Welcome to Roof English Radio. Well, thank you and it's good to meet you, Darren. And it I is really morning here. Uh, yeah, whatever the time. Well, I want, to I want to time travel with you, in fact, back to 1977 when you travelled around Iceland in a kayak and there are two elements to this firstly the experience of being in that boat and moving around the country literally around the edge of that country at that time but also the experiences you had on land i think were very interesting as well so we can compare and contrast the country then and now let's start with why you decided to travel around iceland in this manner in, in 1977 that was a serendipitous meeting with a, a kayaker who had been up to the North Cape of Norway the previous year. And I ran into him on a remote Scottish island and um, he told me about his trip. And when I got back, I looked in the atlas to see which part of Norway it was thinking, you know, I'd really like to go and paddle somewhere like that. And there was an inset map of Iceland. <laughs> and I started looking at that and yes. 
I said to my friend, hey, it looks as if you could probably get all the way around in one summer. Would you be interested? And he just laughed. He thought I was joking and just didn't take me seriously. But that was how it happened. You know, and that's how it started. About, uh, well, it was months. It was the yes. end of the previous summer. And by June, we were on the ferry going out to Iceland. So it was a lot of planning in those days without the internet. Well, I wanted to and ask about that. How do you, in 1977, you go about planning such a trip? Well, you write to the Admiralty Chart Agent, with, send them a check for the charts that you want, and then a week or so later, you get a, a roll of charts coming in the post, in the mail, and you study them. And you rifle through all the library cards at the local library, you know, the little cards that have handwritten notes about yes. what you can find in different books, looking for any references to Iceland. And there were very few. Um, then you go to the travel agent and say, look, I'm, I want to go to Iceland kayaking. Uh, how would I get there? Well, we could get you a flight to Reykjavik, but there used to be a ferry, but it doesn't run anymore. Um, so we could get you there in about the kayaks. Have you tried um, thinking about going out on a fishing boat? Of course, that was a year after the Cod War. Yes. You know, 1976. <laughs> well, you go out on a on a Scottish trawler <laughs> or something. <laughs> anyway, long story short, it's uh, the Faroese company mm -hmm. um, decided to run a ferry service. So we got on the first sailing of that to the, Fe to, uh, the Faroe Islands. Mm -hmm. Spent four days on the Faroe Islands, and, and then the ferry came back and took us on the the final leg. Yeah, because that ferry used to the ferry used to connect the UK. It doesn't anymore. It stopped about fifteen years ago. So you could have picked it up. Maybe you did from Shetland or the the north coast of the UK. Do you remember where you? No, we picked it up. It it ran from Thurso on the north okay. coast or Scrabster, yeah, yeah. and ran from there to the Faroes, and from the, and and then it went yes. over to. So, I mean, and that in itself is quite a significant sea journey. But again, this is happening in 1977 when there is no internet. You've had to learn everything you've ever known about Iceland from books and from maps and, and from various postal communications that you've had. That then takes you into the east coast, east coast. of Iceland, in yes. there. And is that where your journey started? Your That's where our journey started. We uh, carried the kayaks off the ferry. Um, we walked past the custom shed and had to wait till all the... The vehicles, not many vehicles, because it was a small ferry then. Yeah. Um, and then the customs officials looked at the kayaks and decided that we wouldn't have to pay anything unless we didn't take them away with us when we left. <laughs> and we basically loaded the kayaks, found the harbour master, and left a trunk with some rescue gear in it. You know, some repair kits and things like that. Yes. And uh, and then set off and. You know, the snow on the mountains and it was nighttime, but still light. And it was just a magical experience for me because I've never, never been that far north. And, and uh, so, so which way around did you go? You came in at further. Did you then go clockwise around the island or anti-clockwise? We went round clockwise. So you headed south. Yes. And from my research, you know, there is a, an advantage with the current going that way around. Um, but the prevailing winds are against. So you've got the wind or the tide. You know, you don't get both very often. 
Yes. For for those of us like me who are unfamiliar with exactly how these craft operate, we've we've used the word kayak a lot. Just describe the boat that you were in or the craft that you were in. It's a boat, but it's um, 17 foot 11 inches long, so nearly 18 feet long and about 19 inches wide. So it's very narrow, yeah. um, very tippy, and fairly fast. Um, it was my own design, and I'd built it with a friend, friend who uh, worked on computers in uh, University College London. That's in the days of mainframe computers with punch cards and reels of tape. And we put the plans through that and uh, drew out um, sections and then built this plug took the mold and, and made them the kayaks from the mold mm. I had a little bit of a um miscalculation i think you might call it the uh, prototype was fine and then when we built the actual one when i got to get in it i found my legs were too long oh i couldn't get my knees around the corner into the very small cockpit uh, the only way I could get into the cockpit was to kneel on the seat facing the back of the kayak and then corkscrew in. And uh, I had to get out in a similar sort of fashion. And I sort of did have to wonder what it would be like trying to get out on a surf mm. beach in a hurry, you know, swiveling around and kneeling on the seat. And it, it also, and we'll we'll touch on the, the comfort level or otherwise of the trip, but it sounds like a very <laughs> uncomfortable position literally to be in even if you do manage to squeeze yourself in how long would you spend in in the position when you're in the kayak how far did you travel at one stretch um i suppose the longest was across the and we crossed over from the um snaffles nest across to uh, the northwest peninsula the big mm. cliffs there um, and that took a day we were probably yeah. on the water for 12 hours by the time we found a nice place to land so if it's 12 hours sitting in your kayak with your legs out in front of you. Yeah. But it's actually not as uncomfortable as you might imagine because you're you're moving. Not um not static sitting there. You're pushing with your feet. Mm -hmm. Your upper body is rotating. So there's a lot of movement in your body. So you don't get sort of uh, too stiff and no. stuck there. And your partner in crime through all of this, tell me about him. Well, Jeff Hunter, he was a character. He's a um, really easygoing guy. He circumnavigated Britain solo in, I think it was 1970 or 1974, in what can only be described as a Greenland kayak. It's a very low-profile kayak, about 19 feet long and about 19 inches wide, um, but very low to the water. At one point, he broke his paddle, crossing the Solway Firth, which is, you know, a reasonably big body of water. Yes. And and he, he got out of his kayak. He got back in it again and rolled up, but he couldn't actually manage the kayak with a half a paddle. And so he swam, and he swam as far as a buoy, a channel marker, <laughs> climbed on it after many attempts and spent the night on this buoy. In the night, his kayak washed away in the morning he couldn't attract the attention of any ships going past so he ended up swimming four miles to the shore and going home <laughs> this is disaster movie stuff in my head and then you think well what next well he borrowed yeah. his he, he thought about it for a few weeks and then borrowed his friend's boat 
did it up, strengthened it a bit, which was identical to his, and finished the trip. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, so he's a good guy to have along. It's probably... But, but is he someone that you got on with? Because I imagine that would be yes. as important. Yeah, got, on, got on very well with him and still do. I mean, he's a, a great guy. I want to talk about your experiences on land because the idea of Iceland in 1977, particularly outside of the capital, will be fascinating to a lot of people. How much time did you spend on land? How did that work? We spent a lot of time on land. Um, the weather wasn't always very good. Our object was to see Iceland. We wanted to go all the way around, but that wasn't really the big thing. That was the... Um, the carrot on the end of the stick drawing mm. us around, but we wanted to see what we could see. So we would stop and go and get water from a farm. We'd we'd camp in remote places and go and look at the wildlife and maybe climb up the hill. Um, stopped on the Westman Islands, uh, climbed up the volcano, and but you know the the things that really touched my heart were how the people brought us into their homes when they found us one occasion on the south coast um we we landed on a sandbank with a lagoon the other side and the weather was really stormy we'd had a following sea so we'd been speeding along but it was getting wilder and wilder and when we finally landed we had a real difficulty getting the tent up and held down with logs because it was just blowing a hooligan. Mm. And we were so cold and wet, we were crouched inside the tent with the stove going, trying to cook something up to warm us up. And we heard voices outside. And there's a farmer and his friend outside in wet, streaming wet oilskins, who didn't speak any English, tried to tell us that it was going to be windy, which we <laughs> kind of knew <laughs> and then started taking the tent down and we sort of stopped them because the stove was going inside but we decided well okay so we don't know what they're trying to tell us it doesn't look any better for camping on the other side of the lagoon but we'll go with them we got over there and there was someone who spoke a little bit of english with a land rover and said carl would um like you to go to his house and stay on, on the farm until the weather gets better because it's going to get worse. So we ended up spending about six days there on the farm. Really? And he took us up into the mountains to a swimming pool to go swimming, the hot spring. And we went into, uh, we went back to, to Vik for a, a holiday and there was a dance there and you know, someone took us there and um, we did some work on the farm and built a, dug a pit for his, for him to work underneath his tractor in his, in his barn and had a great time. And then he helped us down to the water and off we went again, out to the Westman Islands. And it was people like that all the way around the island. Yeah, yeah. Because people didn't really visit Iceland as tourists in 1977 in huge numbers. They certainly visited Iceland and traversed its coastline by kayak in very, very limited numbers in 1977. <laughs> Both of you, that was it. And so I wonder, I mean, you've answered some of this, I guess, but you you had a very 
warm welcome. Were people surprised that you were doing such a thing, though? They didn't necessarily seem surprised, but they just seemed very welcoming and mm. just as if it was a um, a joy to them to bring us into their house and feed us coffee and and food and see us on our way again. And it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful, warm feeling that I have about Icelandic people that, that stay to this day. What, um, were the, what were the bigger towns like? What was Reykjavik like, the capital? <laughs> on the ferry across to Iceland, there was a... Um, we went down into the into the car hold. It was very rough weather, so the boat was pitching and rolling like crazy. And her car had got entangled with the truck in front, and um, fender over fender or bumper over bumper. Okay. Um, and there were a couple of people there trying to help her lift it out and separate the cars. And so we gave her a hand and did that. And she turned out to be from Reykjavik, and she's, you know. Where are you going? Oh, we're going to go kayaking around Iceland. And sort of like stupid, you know, why, <laughs> why would you do that? Um, if you get as far as Miss Kevlovic, give me a call and I'll come and pick you up and I'll show you around Reykjavik. Well, we did. And mm -hmm. that's, we've stayed with her and her, her uh, parents. And uh, she showed us around Reykjavik and wasn't a huge town or anything it's just no. just what it was you know but that was the little sightseeing uh, yes. episode yeah. around there and so as you move around you've talked about taking the the, the i wouldn't say the ferry your own boat when you <laughs> kayaked across Breithafjörður up towards uh, from from sticky Solmar up towards the the, the west fjords how intricate was your journey into the West Fjords? Did you go around the entirety of that coastline or did you take a broader sort of sweep? Well, we went across the fjords. Um, we sped up the West Coast past Patrick's Fjorder and on up to as far as um, Sudreri. Mm. Mm. Sudreri. And we stopped in there and the weather was catching up with us from behind. And there's this big roll of cloud that had been following, glowering at us, but changing color all through the night. And we landed, set the tent at the edge of the, I, I suppose you'd call it a town, but it's it's a little, little place. Hmm. And in the morning, people were standing around saying, well, it's going to get windy. You should probably move your tent. And we were thinking we were going to leave. We were going to paddle. Yes. Um, but uh, someone persuaded us, oh, yeah, you, you don't want to go today. It's it's going to be very windy. And But you can put your tent by the side of my house, if you like, and you have more shelter there. Mm -hmm. So we moved the kayaks and the tent alongside his house. And then we listened to the weather forecast, and they were forecasting force 10 winds. <laughs> and that's way too too much for us in the kayak so we thought well we'll stay but in the field there it's a very narrow field mm -hmm. about two thousand feet of mountain either side and it's it's very very narrow so the wind didn't really get in there it just blew over the top so we had to figure out well we'll go up to the the little airstrip and 
you know, there's going to be a plane coming in and they'll mm. be able to tell us what the weather's like and they get a forecast from the fishing boats that are offshore that said it was really wild. Yeah. So we spent um, some days there getting to know the people, going to a dance, um, paddling across the field with with our host um, because he had a kayak too mm. and okay. paddling across to the other side to Nodereri, which, you know, there's nobody lives there, but just the other side. Um, just having fun and yeah. meeting people. From from there, uh, going around the north, that was spectacular. Really very spectacular coastline, remote. Mm. Tons of driftwood on the beaches. Did you go to the island of Grimsay? Or did we you... did not go to Grimsay. No. Grimsay. Um, no. Across the fjords yes. um, on the mainland. We stayed on Flatte Island on the north. Mm-hmm. Flatte. Um and we weathered out a bit of bad weather there with snow. <laughs> but this <laughs> was summertime, uh, wasn't it? We should say when you made the journey. It was August by then. August. Yeah. yeah we had, the snow is not snowing. <laughs> unheard of, but it's still still broadly unexpected. I think uh, it's snowing it today as we have our conversation, of course. But it's the middle of January, the end of January. Yeah, that's that's more likely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just mentally mapping your route here, and we're, we're sort of bearing back down, aren't we, on the east? <laughs> And on Sethersfjord by 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 this point, how long did it take you to go it's, all the way around? We spent uh, nine and a half weeks kayaking around. Wow! So That's we were gone from UK for a little while. Significant investment in in time. And and when you got back to Sethersfjord, did you want to do it all again, or or had you had enough of the Icelandic coast for a while? <laughs> I have to say that there was a certain <laughs> amount of disappointment in reaching Sethersfjord. Okay, okay. And it was in enjoying the process. You get up in the morning and you... Every day is a new day. You don't, it's not like you're, you're looking at the long term all the time. It's in the back of your mind, but you're looking at the weather and watching yes. the birds... And the sea conditions and deciding what you're going to do that day and what you're going to eat. And it's a very simple life in some ways, you know, the, the routine of it, mm. um, but very exciting. Um, and the prospect of that ending was was a little sad. Yes. And, yes. you know, to, to think, well, okay, that's it. But then you, you turn it over and think, well, what should I do next? <laughs> so something else, isn't there? You always well, let's talk about plans. what you did next then, because there is a book that we're going to discuss, which you d- describe your journey. But in 1977, you you sail back or you kayak back to Sethersfjord, you return to the UK. When do you next visit Iceland after that? Um, probably about eight years later. I've been back to Iceland a few times, Mm. Um, I went back to hike into the interior. We hitchhiked from with a with a friend from uh, Reykjavik round to um, the Skafta Valley on the south coast, and had, um, hiked into Landmannalauga. Mm. You, you don't um, see Iceland the easy then, way, do you, with all the hiking and the kayaking? <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably was the easy way back then. Think about... Well, um, one of the ways, maybe. <laughs> 1977, there were 
something like 250,000 people living on Iceland. And they had visitors, about 72,000 mm. visitors that year in Iceland. If you come back to a couple of years ago, maybe 350,000 residents and 1.2 million tourists. And now we're, touching, now we're touching 3 million tourists with the, the numbers back <laughs> to the pre-COVID peak. So it'll be 3 million before too long. And that really speaks to one of the significant changes that you may have seen even with your relatively infrequent visits to Iceland. Uh, definitely. Um, when I went around in, I suppose about eight years after, the year after I went hiking there, um, I went out with a group of, uh, a scout group from Cambridge who wanted to do some adventure things on Iceland. And they were going to go, one group hiked across the Springasanda Desert from the south coast to the north coast. Mm. Another group skied across the Vatnajökull ice cap. And the third group wanted to do kayaking. And they kept on contacting me to ask questions and more questions, and then said, there's no chance that we could persuade you to come, is there? <laughs> and of course, I was tempted. So I spent the summer out there, or six weeks or so, and we went um, for the Land Rover from Thorsmork, which is where everybody met up. Yes. And then we dropped off some uh, supplies for the hikers in the middle of uh, Springersander and hiked over Middlesjökull and back down the other side and then drove the Land Rover around to the northwest peninsula up to... Um, well, it's the east side of the Northwest Peninsula. There are a lot of fjords down there, which are quite small. The little herring processing plants, ruins of, and mm -hmm. nice hiking. And we kayaked from fjord to fjord all the way down that little section of coast. And mm. um, finishing off at Gjorga, um, little village or farm that we stayed at in 1977. Mm -hmm. and met the farmer there again, who delighted to see us, and persuaded him to get into a kayak and try, which <laughs> he decided he liked his fishing boat better. Uh, fair <laughs> enough, I him. suppose. <laughs> no, but yeah, um, those days the uh, ring road around Iceland was not paved. It was, Indeed. you know, just a, a rough road even then. So since then, it's changed hugely. Yes, that was a, a very significant change that we noticed first coming here in 1998, when about a third of the ring roads in the east particularly was, as you say, still of gravel surface rather than, than tarmac. Now, I suppose now you are absolutely the expert on, on kayaking around Iceland. So anyone planning such a trip now would probably get in touch with you because you wrote, I mean, literally, you wrote the book on this, didn't you? Iceland by kayak, the first circumnavigation of Iceland by kayak. It's out now, but it was a while in the construction, wasn't it, this book? It, it, well, I would say so. It's about 46 years <laughs> in the writing, which I, I guess is about six words a day or something. It's <laughs> um, But a joy to write because it brings back all the memories of the people that we met that helped us and um, and were just so generous in there mm -hmm. um, meeting these strangers. And have you had a good response to the book so far? We have had a good, yes. Um, 
people have found, well, people have told me that they've really in, been interested. There is a, the, the fascinating bit at the beginning, there's a certain amount of, um, of the introduction is about uh, what it was like back in the 1970s, researching and getting plans and how to, how, how we designed the kayak and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but then within the book itself, there is a lot of history and a lot of the geology of the, the country and some really nice research picking at the, the bits that sparked my curiosity. Yes. All sorts of stuff like, okay, there are lots of logs on the coast of Iceland, but no trees. And those logs didn't come from Iceland. Where did they come from? And if you think about it, a log doesn't uh, float for very long before it gets so soaks up water and sinks. So, you know, you get these little puzzles. Well, it's not going to have enough time to come around on the ocean currents mm -hmm. from anywhere, from Norway or from Siberia to get to Iceland before it sinks. Well, you know, little puzzles like that. So I had plenty of things to to look up afterwards. And, and what was your answer to that? Well, most of the logs come out of the uh, Siberian, the North North Russian coast, and they come down on the rivers and then get frozen into the ice. And the ice goes around on the on the ocean currents, comes down the coast of Greenland towards on the East Greenland current, towards the north coast of Iceland, and then the ice melts, drops the logs, and they float the last little bit. Well, the book, as we say, is available now. It's called Iceland by Kayak, The First Circumnavigation of Iceland by Kayak by yourself, Nigel Foster. And in terms of getting a copy of this in Iceland, it is available on Amazon. That's sometimes you know, not the cheapest way to, to, to get a book to, to Iceland. Is it published within the country, or do you know of a better way, perhaps, for someone to read this within Iceland? Amazon's the easiest really because they do print the closest they print in europe you know you're going to get a book that's mailed from europe highly recommended if you want to learn not just about the intricacies of traveling around the coast of this country nearly 50 years ago but also what the country looked and felt like nearly 50 years ago when were you last here then no i don't can't remember the year but there was a the last time i think was when there were two south african kayakers going around in a tandem kayak and there was a sit on top with little cuddies for their legs. And they had a film crew with them. And they wanted to meet Jeff and myself mm -hmm. and get a backstory because they were doing this TV series for um, television in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And so we met Isafjula with Haldor and the kayaking club that he has up there now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we spent a day went out in the kayak and they had a spare kayak with them. And so the four of us went out just for a short paddle. And uh, that was the last time, I last think. Time. Well, you are yeah. obviously welcome back. And I'm sure you would want to return again at some point to. And, yes. and see what the country looks like now and maybe reflect on some of the changes since 1977. Nigel Foster, thank you very much indeed. Well, Darren, it's been a pleasure. And thank you for taking us back in time and taking us around the coast of Iceland by, by kayak. The first, and we should underline that, the first circumnavigation of the country by kayak. Is that because no one else was mad enough to do it, do you think? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but there have been a, quite a few people who have uh, been around now. And I yeah. have to say that it is, if you're thinking of doing that, 
It is a, an incredible coastline to paddle around with a lot of beautiful wildlife, geology, and amazing people. And yeah, I'd highly recommend it. It's um, always going to be a first, no matter when yes. you go around with it. Well, there'll be no shortage of kayakers now, I'm certain. Nigel, thanks very much indeed. This is Ruve English Radio. I'm Darren Adam, and you can get in touch with us anytime. English at ruv.is. There is more from Ruve English with all the news from Iceland in English at ruv.is slash English. Ruve English Radio is a daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Ruve.